0: Coming up on today's show, scientists have discovered that you can track the spread of a hit song just like you can track the spread of an infectious disease. Our food service industry continues to struggle with a labor shortage, and they're doing everything they can to get people to come to work. It's really having an impact. We'll walk through that. And there's a project underway to bring back the woolly mammoth. If you've seen Jurassic Park, you know the concern some people have, but it's underway. We'll talk to one of the people working on Project Mammoth. So hit songs, this is going to be a fun discussion, I think. We're talking about hit songs and some really neat modeling that's been done by senior university researchers in our country saying, okay, let's see if we can track this the way we track infectious diseases. And you know what? It kind of works. It's really interesting. We're going to talk now with Dora Rosati, who is a researcher into this, a database analyst and the lead author of this study. Dora, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Hi, Sue, Thank you for having me. This is a really cool idea. Uh, just explain it to our listeners. Basically, what you did is said, okay, we know how we track infectious diseases through data and all the rest of those things. Does that work the same with a hit song? Do I have that correct?
1: That's that's absolutely right. Um, when we looked at song download data, we were really struck by how similar it looks to infectious disease data, and coming from a research group that uses mathematical tools to study infectious disease, we thought, well, maybe we can do the same to study song popularity, and it, it actually worked quite well.
0: Okay, so in tracking infectious diseases, what do you track? I mean, what are sort of the components that you sort of can monitor it, throughout the stages of an infectious disease or a pandemic or an epidemic or whatever? What what are you exactly looking at?
1: When we're thinking of it from a mathematical perspective. We classify everyone in the population as either susceptible, infectious, or recovered. So in the disease context, that's That's fairly self-explanatory. If you're susceptible, you might catch the disease. If you're infectious, you're actively spreading it. And if you're recovered, you're no longer infectious. Um, And when we translate that to a song context, uh, if you're susceptible to a song, um, it means that if you hear the song, there's some probability that you might want to download it, keep listening to it, if you're infected with the song, you're really enjoying the song, you're listening to it actively, maybe you're sharing it on social media or telling people how much you like it and effectively infecting other people. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you get sick of that song, you move on to the next new uh, hit, and then you're considered
0: recovered. And so actually the way that it spreads through the population sort of parallels the way that infectious disease does then, right? If you've got the, those three groupings in the population, you can also extrapolate to how it spreads through the population.
1: Exactly. For a disease, those uh, social contacts that spread a disease have to have some kind of physical contact, whether it's hugging a sick friend or maybe um, breathing the air of someone else who is sick. Um, whereas for a disease, it might be physical, pro- or sorry, for a song, it might be physical proximity that helps you to spread it, but it also might be social contacts that's um, virtual. So maybe you hear it on the radio or at a public event or uh, social media.
0: And we know that you can, and we're trying to do this desperately with the pandemic we're in now, is track when we peak and when it will fade away. Can you do the same thing with music?
1: So right now, we don't, we're don't. we not able to do that predictively with music. What our study um, did is basically opened up this totally new way of looking at song popularity, and we verified that, yes, it's a valid way to do it, and... It's something that we should explore in the future. So with a bit more work, we might be able to make it predictive. And that would be very interesting because then much like with a, um, a disease or pandemic, you can sort of predict this is how many people might be infected. You might be able to predict for a song, this is how many people would download that song or listen to it.
0: It's all about data. Where did you get the data? Where did you come up with the, the hard numbers that you could put through your, your system here?
1: So we had access to um, a database of uh, billions of song downloads through song, through, uh, Mix Radio, an app that was on Nokia phones from 2007 to 2014. Um, so That's where our data came from, and we looked specifically at the downloads in Great Britain over that time period.
0: Okay, and it, it applies to all genres of music, right? You can see this duplicated. Is it different in any way, depending on what kind of music we're talking about?
1: We do see some differences across genres. The one number that um, we look at and that I think people have become a little more familiar with over the course of the pandemic is the R-not number or the basic reproduction number. What that says for a disease is if you're infected and you're in a totally susceptible population, how many people are you going to pass the disease on to? So for a song, it's very similar, except it's if I'm infected with a song, I really like it. I'm telling people about it. How many other people am I going to influence to download that song? And that number did change quite a bit between genres. Um, so the average that we looked at was different depending on which genre you were looking at.
0: Which ones were really high?
1: Surprisingly, um, it wasn't pop that had the highest r Oh, really? I would have thought like, it would be. Exactly. That's what we expected because it's literally called popular music. Yeah, yeah. But um, it was actually electronica that had the highest um, R-naught. And after that, it was rap and hip-hop and then rock.
0: Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we do with this information? I mean, it's, it's very interesting. It's very cool. How can we practically apply it?
1: Uh, So the biggest uh, immediate application is that we might be able to use models like this to learn things about song popularity. So this is a big question in the music world. How do songs become popular and how is it that with thousands and thousands of songs released every day, there's a fairly small set that everybody can recognize as soon as it comes on the radio. Um, So this might open an avenue for trying to learn how that happens. Um, it also tells us a little bit about how we interact with each other and how our human behavior in, impacts our preferences. We didn't look at musical characteristics, we just looked at uh, human Um And then long term, it would be that predictive um, capability that you mentioned that would be worth going into further.
0: Very cool. You didn't figure out what makes a hit song a hit song, though. You can't figure that out from the data, can you, how some songs become hits?
1: Not yet. Um, I, I think that if that were the case, that would be a monumental.
0: That's discovery. that undefinable ca- uh, quality <laughs> that we just can't put our finger on. Dora, thank mm-hmm. you so much. Very interesting work. Thank you. Thank you. That is Dora Rosadia, a database analyst and a lead author of the study. That's the work that somebody needs to do. Somebody needs to figure out, yeah, okay, but how do some songs become hits? When we were talking about this earlier, setting up the show, somebody tweeted, can somebody explain why Macarena became a hit? I can't. I can't. That is the worst song ever. But it was a massive, massive hit. So maybe one day, there's researchers out there working on how horrible, horrible music suddenly becomes hits. Just think some of the songs over the years that are just terrible when you hear them now and you're like, this was a number one song. How bad were the rest of the songs in that time period? But it's kind of interesting to see how you can track uh, the infectious disease. So we're going to chat here a bit about what's going on in the restaurant industry in our country right now, and uh, they're doing their best to come back from the pandemic. They really are, but they're having a tough time, and the biggest barrier I think a lot of them are facing right now is getting people to work for them. It's tough. I got a kid who's uh, 17, and he's working now for a very very popular chain of restaurants, Um, and half the hockey team that he played on last year is working there because one kid got hired, and the manager of the restaurant said, listen... If you can get one of your buddies to come work here, I'll promote you and give you an extra dollar an hour. They did it. Then another kid got hired from the hockey team, did the same thing, and another kid and another kid. And I think there's five of them there now, four or five of them, something like that. And this is a strategy that a lot of restaurants are deploying now, along with all other manner of things, to try and get people to come back to work because they need the staff and they're having a horrible time getting what they need so we're going to chat now with mark von shelowitz who is vice president of western canada for restaurants canada uh mark thank you for your time this morning i appreciate it pleasure to be here so when we take a look at what's going on in the restaurant industry i mean just how bad is it what kind of a labor shortage are we looking at
2: well i guess first i'd say you know we're a very labor intensive industry we're a people business and you know we had real difficulty finding staff even before the pandemic Uh, According to Statistics Canada, we had, before the pandemic, about 60,000 unfilled positions. uh, And now, of course, after the pandemic, for a number of different reasons, that's numbers more than doubled, where Statistics Canada is now saying that we have 130,000 unfilled positions in Canada's uh, food service industry. So it's a significant challenge, and and of course, there's many reasons for uh, for it. Uh, You know, I guess uh, one of the biggest ones, I guess, is the demographics challenge alone. Uh, You know, we have uh, a changing demographics, people are aging, and there's a lot fewer young people entering the workforce. So, for example, if we had the same sort of uh uh, participation rate of young people entering the workforce that we did a, a decade ago, mm-hmm. uh, we'd have 100,000 more people in the workforce, young people in the workforce that we could choose from. So it's partially a demographic challenge. It's a It's a geographic challenge as well. There's a lot fewer younger people in some of these smaller communities that are really having challenges keeping their doors open uh, full time. And of course, after the pandemic, you know, sales are down. We have most of our members still losing money, so uh, you know they need that staff in order to to get open and uh, and and to service their guests. So we have a real labor uh, supply and demand mismatch in the industry right now.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's 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 severe. I'm wondering why some of these people aren't coming back. You know, if they were working in that industry before, I imagine for some people, you know, if you had that year year and a half where you couldn't go to work, some of them, you know, just basically out of necessity would have found other things and maybe got lured out of that industry and they're gone for good. Yeah. A part of the challenge
2: that we're facing right now, it was a really difficult, you know, during the, uh, Pandemic, we had all these restrictions. They were stopping and starting, and uh, our staff weren't getting consistent hours. And uh, eventually, I think some of them just said, "Okay, time to look for something yeah. a little bit more stable and consistent." So that's certainly part of it. I think uh, the whole safety thing is another issue, and and just the whole COVID thing. People are literally uh, not as comfortable in these front uh, staff positions. Safety is also a concern because you know you've all heard the incidents of. Of you know anti-maskers and and people against vaccine passports that are sort of taking it out in our industry and of course that makes it really difficult to uh, attract somebody to be in a position. We're a fun industry. We you know pride ourselves in offering those flexible work schedules, building up that teamwork and their friendships that are built up in this. And it's supposed to be a fun industry, and it's not very much fun when you have somebody you know hurling abuse at you. So so I think mm-hmm. that's certainly an issue as well. But uh, I loved your opening about your your kids because because... because really the industry is really innovative and resilient and they're trying all sorts of options right now to to attract staff. I mean, you mentioned the referral bonuses is a big one, you know, the flexible work schedules, free meals. Um, you know, and, you know, offering health and dental benefits earlier. Um, and, you know, so so those are some of the things that the industry is doing to attract them back. But uh, uh, it's just really a numbers game right now. And, of course, what we're asking for is, uh, look, there's got to be, a, a, you know, a more permanent solution to this because the demographics aren't going to change. And we certainly need to focus more on immigration. You know, we're asking for a, a food service-specific stream of the Temporary Foreign Workers Program that understands unique challenges of our industry, you know, through the AI and P program as well, uh, just making sure that there's more of a focus on on tourism and hospitality businesses, because there is really that that labor supply and demand mismatch there that uh, the only way that we can get our our members fully operational again is by bringing in some more of these uh, uh, foreign workers and and our members don't care whether they're foreign workers or not foreign workers. They just need workers. And yeah. if that's a solution, they're 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 happy to, to
0: take it. What? So, I mean, like like I mentioned, my kid, and, and, it, and like I say, it seems to be working because I, I swear to God, there's five or six of them <laughs> that have been hired on over the last month or so. Um, but what else are they doing? I mean, I've heard some restaurants are limiting hours. They're closing for some days. They're closing earlier, things like that, just because they don't have the staff to be open as much as they would like to be.
2: Yeah, excellent point, Shay, and and that's part of the thing that's actually hurting the other staff because if you're not if you don't have enough staff to open up a certain shift, uh, you know the whole shift is shut down, so nobody gets any work. And uh, I know of multiple stories of you know apparently in the quick service industry and some of these more remote locations in the province where you know they're supposed to be a twenty four seven operation, they just can't. Do those shifts. They can't open twenty four hours and other restaurants just simply are closing certain days of the week where uh, where business is usually slower and they just don't have the staff to be able to to deal with all the clientele and, and it's really frustrating if you can imagine, you know, right now eighty percent of our members have been losing money. Um, and as well, at the same time, as they're losing money, they need this business really badly right now. And there's all these obstacles to uh, preventing them from actually getting back and paying back their debts and, and and staying open. So, so it's a pretty frustrating situation out there, and uh, and certainly one that uh, that needs, I think, some government help
0: to solve. Um, is there anything that the consumer can do? I mean, I guess you can you can go there, but I mean, at the same time increase in business with a lack in staff could backfire right i mean what 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 can the average consumer do to help here
2: well, I think uh, just recognize that, uh, you know, there are these shortages, you know, do more takeout and delivery, which isn't as is involved with the staffing, but uh, and just double check ahead of time that, uh, you know, there's enough staff to do it. But uh, naturally, our members don't want to be open unless they can provide their guests the service that their guests require. So uh, they'd rather not be open than to provide bad service. So so. Uh, i guess uh, just be patient and uh and uh, as far as the consumers out there hey word of mouth works great if yeah. you know anybody young people that are out there right now you know they may be on cerb or they may be students uh, uh please send them our way and uh, uh and i think you know it's a, it's a great rewarding Uh, job experience for for those that uh, enter the industry like we always say whether it's a year or a career you you've got great opportunities in the in the restaurant industry uh to to get your first foothold on your employment ladder or to you know go all the way up we have uh positions going from entry level all the way to to executives so uh it's a great industry i've worked in it many years and, and it's a fun industry uh but uh Ultimately, we have to solve the sort of demographic and geographic uh, labor shortage that's out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, you know, I imagine if you're somebody who's thinking, you know what, I could pick up, you know, 16 hours a week, 24 hours. I mean, employers would be willing to be quite flexible and work with you on taking what you can offer, right? Yeah, and
2: that's one of the great uh, benefits of working in our industry is we can work around your, you know, work-life balance. So, for example, even if you're a mom and you're at home part of the time, but you have... Maybe a few days or a few shifts that you could work a week—a uh, great little thing to 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 add some supplemental income. And uh, uh, you know, we will cater, um, you know, to your schedule. And and uh, if you're only available to work certain times or certain shifts, we'll we'll certainly be happy to to uh, provide those opportunities. And and I think that in the end, that is is our sort of. Uh, a competitive advantage to certain others is that flexibility of scheduling.
0: Yeah, exactly. Interesting discussion. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Shane. That is Mark Von Schelowitz, who is vice president for Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. I've <music> been waiting for this discussion all day. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Ah, yes, the great Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park talking about the scientists being too wrapped up with whether they could, not thinking about whether they should. Does that apply to this discussion? The parallels are striking. But at the same time, as I said, this sounds really, really cool. We're talking about bringing back the woolly mammoth, de extinction. And to tell us all about it, we have Ben Novak, who is the lead scientist with Revive and Restore. Ben, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us. Oh,
3: thank you very much for having
0: me. Okay, let's define what we're talking about here, bringing back the woolly mammoth. Basically, in a nutshell, that's what it is, but it's a a huge, huge process. So just tell us about the work, because you've been doing this for years, working on this already. Um, Just tell us how you go about tackling a project like this and how long you think it might take.
3: Yeah, so, well, just to give credit where credit is due, um, George Church at Harvard is the lead on the mammoth project uh which was incubated by revive and restore starting uh in early 2013 um and uh actually has recently george has uh built a company called colossal which is now taking over the mammoth project they've brought in some real money now Mm -hmm. um, to move that forward and they've got a lot of really great ideas for carrying what we started into the future, I think with what they're doing, um, you know, we're looking at a timeline of definitely under 20 years, wow. maybe 10 to our first mammoths. Um, and they're advancing the technology in ways that hadn't really been thought of yet. Um, so the basics are within the last 20 some years, it's been possible to sequence the DNA of extinct mammoths from their bones from the permafrost of Canada, Alaska, and, and Siberia. And people have sequenced the entire genome, and we've found out that, you know, these species, this species is virtually identical to the Asian elephant. Um, in fact, <laughs> I, I worked at a lab in Canada for a couple of years, and one of the mammoth bones that was worked with turned out to be a circus elephant that had been really? buried <laughs> <laughs> along some old train tracks. I mean, these are so close together that when you dig up their bones, you can get fooled. Um And that's really promising for de-extinction because how it works is now that they have that genome sequence, they can and they've compared it to the Asian elephant. They can figure out which mutations make the two species different. Turns out that it's only about one million mutations out of a three billion base pair genome. So that's a really small amount. And for the last few years, people have only been able to edit maybe a few mutations at a time. But with Colossal and George Church's new innovations, they're going to be working on trying to get up to possibly that entire million Hmm. and making something that's very faithful to what the original mammoth was. There are some reasons why it will always be somewhat of a, a living hybrid, but the, but the goal is to use modern gene editing technology to take those elephant Asian cells in a Petri dish, make them into mammoth cells, and then use advanced reproductive technologies. George's team is planning on actually creating a synthetic uterus. Um, there are other options available, um, possibly using uh, stem cell gametogenesis where you take the cells, make stem cells, make sperm and eggs and use IVF. And then we would use a African or Asian elephant mother to bring them to term. But, but ultimately the goal is the same, no matter what, you create a whole generation of new baby mammoths. They're raised by their surrogate elephant parents who have extremely uh, similar social structure. And it turns out, in Canada, at a few zoos, there are Asian elephants that love playing in the snow already. So they can't survive long winter right, yeah. in, in the snow. But we have families of elephants ready to take care of baby mammoths. And we've even got some homes up in the north to put them. And that's where we want them to go so that they can help convert tundra to grassland, which is the most ideal carbon environment that we can try to create for long-term climate stability.
0: You heard the quote from Dr. Malkin, and I'm sure this is something you run into daily ben um we're trying to find out if we can do it the question though is should we do it what is that not an ethical is that something that you've had to grapple with in terms of okay maybe we can do this but should we do this you know
3: my passion for this subject goes back to when i was 13 years old and and that's when i made up my mind on the should we question because uh you know all over the world people have actually been restoring extinct species they've just been doing it by taking a living relative and popping it down where a species went extinct. So the wolves of Yellowstone were exterminated by about 1925. Seventy years later, wolves from Alberta were brought down into Yellowstone, a different subspecies to take on their role. And after 26 years now of, of observing what's happened, it's been incredible beneficial transformation. There's Yellowstone now has the highest densities of mammal biodiversity in the lower 48 states, and it's because of those
0: wolves coming in. But those Um, are natural life forms,
3: They are. So is a recreated mammoth. There's nothing (laughs) artificial about it.
0: How can you say it's not artificial? I mean, explain that. Well,
3: DNA is life. It doesn't matter if you rewrite it. If you manipulate it, it's life. It's the building blocks of life. We're not inventing it. Nothing in the process of recreating a mammoth or a passenger pigeon or even a GMO crop is reinventing life. It's actually learning how to commandeer what life has been doing good for billions of years and learning and using what we've learned. Um, So, you know, a mammoth, a de-extinct mammoth, a de-extinct passenger pigeon, um, they're going to be living, breathing, beautiful organisms like anything else. Um, and I'd say the answer to, uh, Ian Malcolm's comment in Jurassic Park, which is a phenomenal movie. It is. I mean, I I grew up on it. (laughs) Uh, it just comes in the form of a recent Ted talk by our chief executive officer, um, Ryan Phelan. If anybody wants to look it up, it's a quick 15 minute watch, uh, Ted.com. It's titled the genetic rescue of earth's endangered species because gene editing for making a mammoth. Is just the tip of the iceberg of what could be done. We have collapsing coral reefs. We have species like the black footed ferret that are susceptible to introduce disease. They all need help adapting to the changes human beings have accelerated. And the reason they're struggling to adapt today is because we've annihilated their habitats and populations to a point where they no longer have the genetic diversity to evolve completely on their own. And so they need a little bit of help. So, you know. There's a really good um, answer to all these questions in what we call the intended consequences uh, movement, which is conservation has been working for a couple centuries now and getting gains like the wolves in Yellowstone, like delisting alligators uh, off the endangered species list, doing things like controlled burning in the forest and clear-cutting to stimulate disturbances, um, captive breeding and reintroduction to the wild, Conservation is actually full of huge interventions for species that really challenge a lot of our questions on what is natural and what is artificial. And when you really delve into the 200-year successful history of conservation, um, you see that intervention is not only the norm, but it's how we've managed to save the nature we have. And mammoth the extinction is simply the next step in that process. It's opening up. The extinction is opening up the ability to restore the eco, ecology of unique species like mammoths and passenger pigeons, which conservationists have wanted to do for a long time, but there wasn't the technology to be able to do it. And so we've finally learned enough about life to be able to start these amazing projects. And we at Revive and Restore are absolutely committed to doing this in concert with conservationists, the best scientists, it's an iterative process, one little step at a time, taking into account what are the risks, how do we mitigate, how do we learn from the lessons of the past and do this the absolute best we can do. Yeah. And for anybody who's really interested getting into the nitty-gritty, I have two published papers. You just go to Google Scholar, look up Ben Novak. There's the paper De-Extinction, and then there's a paper on U.S. conservation translocations. They're, you know, they're review papers. They're written more for a broad audience. And you'll learn a whole lot about basically any question you'd want to know about these. And if you're really interested on things like animal welfare, I have a book chapter that I'm happy to send out so that no one has to buy a $200 <laughs> book. <laughs> um, you can find my email on Revive and Restore's website. You can learn all about our projects on there with, uh, with coral reefs. We even have a project funded in your, uh, up near your area in Alberta on studying genomics of long-toed salamanders which conservationists there are um, assisting gene flow because highways and, and and things like that have cut off populations. So we're, uh, we're trying to help a little bit everywhere we can from just studying species, how they're doing, and helping to intervene better, all the way to these radical things like de-extinction, which seem controversial, but really actually fit in very well with what we've been doing for decades.
0: If we can do this with the woolly mammoth or the... Passenger pigeon, as you mentioned, or things like that. What's the limit? I mean, I know your group says, no, we're not interested in bringing back the T-Rex. That's not what we're about. But once this starts happening, I mean, you know how technology works. Where's the end on this? Well,
3: the same conversation was had about nuclear weapons and nuclear power. And it didn't play out the way people thought. Nuclear weapons were certainly a bad idea. They did get used and they fueled a Cold War. But nuclear power has been an incredible asset to advancing green energy and teaching us lessons of where we go. And the fears people had about an all out nuclear winter never came to pass. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of instances in which mass hysteria came around new technologies and has never come, the fears have never come to pass. We were 40 years in on GMOs. And every time someone tries to tell us that they're giving us cancer or causing problems, it's debunked. It's, it's just lies. Um, we're definitely advancing the world. We've got a lot of problems to fix and the limits I'd say are pretty hard. Um, DNA for de-extinction, uh, the limits I mean, you know, DNA doesn't last longer than about a million, million and a half years, even in Siberia in the permafrost. Um, so we can't get DNA from a dinosaur it might be decades or even over a century before we know enough about genetics to be able to even bother maybe artificially creating a dinosaur, as, as you might call it, um, because we can't get the real DNA from okay. a dinosaur. We would have to actually invent in a chicken or an emu, you know, what we believe the genes would have had to have been to create a dinosaur. And there are some scientific ways to do that. But but it's a little far stretched right now. We're looking at species that have gone extinct in the last 10 to 100,000 years, which all of the latest science shows that most species that went extinct in the last 125,000 years were driven to extinction because of
0: changes that humans have been
3: making to the environment.
0: So So without our involvement, they might full well still be out here. So it's not like, because some people are texting me right now saying, well, didn't they go extinct for a reason? And that reason could be what we did. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah, I actually, I come from an ecology and somewhat of a paleontology background. And, and the reality is, is all the species, almost all the species alive today, greater than 99% of them, were alive with woolly mammoths. And, you know, at the time that woolly mammoths were alive, when passenger pigeons were alive, every species alive today was alive during the Ice Age 20,000 years ago. The average lifespan of a species on this planet before it evolves into something else or goes extinct is about three to five million years. So all those species that were driven to extinction in the last 100,000 years had tens of, tens of thousands to a couple million years left before they would have possibly been right. extinct or evolved into something else. And I think that's a big selling point also for the Mammoth Project is uh, 12,000 years ago, there were over 17 species of proboscideans, the, the elephant family, throughout the world. Dwarf elephants on islands like Crete and Cyprus, Gonfothyrs in South America, Mastodon, and three species of mammoths in North America. It was a diverse group. And in 12,000 years, we've driven them down to just three species that are all endangered. And what we've learned from genomics, studying those extinct species and these living species, we know that part of that diversification, what kept that family going, was frequent hybridization, And the fact that they could colonize and live in a diverse set of habitats. So editing Asian elephants to be able to survive in Siberia is possibly one of the best ways to actually save elephants because we get them away from the black market trade where they live right now and get them up into an environment that's vast, that isn't largely degraded by humans, and where humans have a very difficult time actually living and getting to. You can think of Siberia as a a safe haven for the mammoths that will live there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what they said about Costa Rica, Doc. You know that. (laughs) (laughs) No mammoths were sent to Costa Rica. (laughs) Exactly. It's an awesome discussion. I appreciate it. We'll follow up, and we'll continue uh, seeing how this goes. We could talk about this for hours, but we're out of time. But I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much.
3: Well, if I can just sign off quick, I just want to say, I actually work on the Passenger Pigeon Project, Um, and avian genetic rescue Um, so if you're into birds definitely check out our website and revive and restore Um, the mammoth project is now in the hands of colossal but all of our projects that we're doing if you check us out rely completely on donations we're a non-profit so if you're interested you know every supporting dollar makes these things go forward and it's not just about de-extinction it's about everything from coral reefs to black-footed ferrets to you know, long-toed salamanders Salamanders. in Canada.
0: Okay. Good stuff, Ben. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye. That's Ben Novak. He's the guy. He's doing it. He gave you his reasons. Um, Like I say, it's cool. It's really cool. How cool would it be to have mammoths? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.